the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. So many times in my academic career, you know, I wouldn't get that grade that I needed or when I got in law practice coming out trying cases and losing them or, you know, investing in different business ideas that didn't pan out, but always getting back to like rock bottom and just getting up, I think is the main thing. I think if you read the book, you'll see the struggle because I'm pretty candid about not taking myself seriously and letting everybody know like, this has been a hard struggle, but it's worthwhile when you're, you know, giving it your all. So I think the main thing is just like, keep getting up. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Tyson, my friend, it's good to see you. We were just talking about a friend of ours. Johnny, you don't know a friend of ours. His name is Mark Hammer. He's a criminal defense attorney here in St. Louis. And he had someone collapse in the courtroom. And Tyson was just telling me how Mark was able to bring him back to life by doing CPR. It's pretty crazy. I mean, it's, it's a really cool story. I'll, I need to share it on the Facebook page because it's really cool. I mean, the guy was literally, he had no heart. He was not breathing. And they did CPR. The paramedics arrived. They're still doing CPR. And they're like, like, hey, do you want to take over? They're like, no, you're doing a good job. Keep going. And they, they hooked up the defibrillator. Pretty nuts. Kind of crazy. But the guy's alive. It's really awesome. So, Jimmy, we have an awesome guest today. You want to introduce him? I'm really excited to introduce him. He's my friend, Johnny Finch. He's a criminal defense attorney. I met him through Mitch Jackson's Legal Minds Social Media Mastermind Group. And Johnny is great whenever he's on the call, which because he's so busy, he's not always on the call, but when he's on the call, it's always fun. So I thought he'd be a great guest for us. He's also the author of a brand new book called Black Lawyer Confidential. So we want to hear all about the bookmaking process. And Johnny, welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here. Very, very excited to be here. So Jimmy, was this you just calling out Johnny for not being on the call all the time? Was that what you were doing just now? No, no, not at all. I'm just saying how much I like it when he is on the call. Okay, I just want to make sure. And then, before I get into these questions, you were on the side of the road. It sounds like it sounds like you pulled your car over and you part. You're like sitting in a ditch or something. Will you tell people what you're doing so that when they hear all these noises, they know what's going on? I'm basically I'm sitting in the Rocket Park in Maplewood between meetings outside the office. So I 
I knew we had this recording with Johnny and I had hoped that I'd be able to attend by video, but my cellular's pretty lame. So we're on an audio only for me. Tyson is riding his brand new exercise tricycle. So when you see the video, it's going to look like Johnny sitting in a hostage video scenario. He's got a weird guy named Jim talking to him through a microphone and he's got another weird guy riding his bike. So this is quality video and quality audio. Um, nobody can say otherwise. This is why Maxim Lawyer is so fantastic. It's three working lawyers on a podcast talking about practice law. So, all right, Johnny. So, fill us in. Tell us about you, your firm, and how you got started. Okay. So, North Carolina lawyer. I've been practicing criminal defense for about five years now. I do a lot of drugs, a lot of DWIs, a lot of assaults in my hometown. And went to a high school, very, very small high school, very, very small, historically black college, Liberty City State University. And then I went to Regent University. The difference between my college and my law school was my college was 95% minority and my law school was 95% white. And so getting there was definitely a cross-training, educationally cross-training event for me. It was a culture shock. And then when I started practicing law, similar to my law school experience, about 5% black or, you know, in a small town, I mean, you have about... 12 lawyers and, you know, if you get an African-American there, it's going to be one. So um, I'm used, I've usually been that guy. And so while I was learning different culture of law school, the culture of law practice, dealing with clients, it was, uh, I remember obviously making mistakes every day because we're still practicing, but I wanted to come up with a book or some type of manual for those who are from small towns or minorities that have never had parents who were lawyers or ever even been in the court system before to try to deal with it. Because I, when I was going through it, it was kind of an emotional time. And if there was some manual out there, I probably could have coped with law school and law practice a lot differently if I didn't have to deal with the emotional aspect. So the Black Lawyer Confidential is not about the academics, but more just dealing with scenarios, your emotions, how you feel, not taking yourself so serious, a little bit of motivation. So yeah, that's pretty much it, man. Johnny, walk us back to those first few days of law school when you looked around having come from a historically black college and being one of a few African-Americans in your law school class. What what did that feel like and what, what went through your mind at the time? <laughs> you know, it was actually funny. I just kept looking. So I was just going in the hallways. I went in the classroom and I'm looking. And I'm like, you know, I, I know that there's more minorities around here somewhere. So I just kept looking. <laughs> so like after like a week and a half, I was like, Oh, there's two. And I was like, uh, at that particular point in time, I was like, you know, how do we really deal with this? And I go into it a, a little bit in the book. My situation culturally in the South, North Carolina, you have the same culture. So the, the whites and the blacks, we pretty much act the same. And nobody's super rich. You know, we do have some uh, poverty in our area, but blacks and whites are pretty much the same. Nobody's, you know, super uptight. And so to get into this environment, it appeared that my peers, you know, came from a different conservative environment or a super rich environment or an environment where they're always around judges and things where I probably had seen one judge in my life. So that coupled with the fact that there weren't a lot of minorities, it really put me at a place of I felt like disadvantaged because I felt like I wasn't prepared, number one. And number two, was was I even supposed to be there? And so being that I already felt that way, if there was anything that was said or that I could partially take personally, I may take it personally, even though it wasn't meant to be personal. So just getting past that emotional part of, you know, do I belong here was a big part of. It. And I think, you know, 
I enjoyed the academics, even though it was really tough for me. I say around the second year is when I kind of felt like I belonged. Though. So, Johnny, I'm sure, I mean, you're not alone in this. So what's the response been to the book that you wrote? Because it's, it's a really interesting book. So what's, what's the response been? So initially, my publisher, she came out with a cover of the book before we had, did the la- we had done the last draft of the book. And the title is Black Lawyer Confidential, Keys to Success. And so there were a lot of people that I thought that would never even care to look on my Facebook page or, you know, we were friends or on social media. They were saying, oh, wow, Johnny has a book. Johnny has a book. And the results of that was I had to go back and really, really look at the book because I didn't know who would be interested, but I felt like it would be more so minorities. But a lot of my white friends were super excited about the book. And so when I saw that, and a lot of them were kind of like, hey, man, you know, what is this black lawyer confidential book all about? Why does it have to be black lawyer? You know, can it be just lawyer? And I'm like, OK, I got to deal with this. <laughs> and so what I did, you know, I, I spoke with them and I came out with a couple of videos on social media just explaining, like, because it says black lawyer confidential, it doesn't mean for just black. It's just for black people and minorities. It means that I'm black and I'm giving you tips, which I feel like can make you successful. And once I was able to share that with my friends and share some videos and talk to them, I think kind of calmed it down. I think overwhelmingly, though, the curiosity has been there, which can be kind of good. And if people really know me, they know that I'm not going to come out with anything that's going to shake up things too much. But there were a couple of judges and a couple of lawyers that were kind of afraid that I might kind of pull something out. Because, you know, you can be in court sometimes and not feel right about what's going on. And I think you know, some of the judges might have been like, what is Johnny about to say? No, 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 no. I'm not. <laughs> That's not what this is all about. Definitely. It's not what it's all about. And so, Johnny, what did you tell those people that said, why is it got to be a black lawyer confidential? Why can't it just be lawyer confidential? Well, when they first asked me, I didn't know how to answer the question because I didn't I didn't even understand where it was coming from. So when I named the book Black Lawyer Confidential, to me, it was again, it was giving a description of myself. I'm a black lawyer. And so when someone asks me, why does it have to be Black Lawyer Confidential from a white person, I'm thinking to myself, like, I didn't understand if they were feeling like offended by it or, you know, if it was too cutting edge or I didn't understand where they were coming from. So I sat back and I, you know, I've been blessed to have friends, white and black friends, you know, by the hundreds. And so I shared my book with a couple of my with my white peers. I said, hey, man, read it from front to back. Do you feel like anything is offensive? Do you think that anything here should be said differently? They read the book. They thought that it was fine, that nothing was offensive to any particular group at all. And so I wasn't prepared the first time to answer the question, ask me the question. But the second time I just said, hey, I'm just saying what I am. You know, I am just saying what I am. The book is for everybody. And I think everybody enjoy it in any professional capacity. So that's kind of how I dealt with it. But it shocked me at first, man, because I didn't I didn't think the the name could be offensive to white people. I just didn't know you could do that. <laughs> so, I mean, John, whenever you're writing a book, I mean, things like this come up and so things you have to questions you have to answer. So talk about the process. What was the process like of writing the book? How long did it take you to write the book? Well, um, the first weeks of law school were the toughest for me. And I started doing a journal and I would just write it to myself. You know, today was a good day. Today was a bad day. This this person said this. I didn't agree with it. This group of people did this. We're playing flag football. We're going out. We're having drinks. I mean, I'm putting everything into the book. 
just helping me kind of cope with the times because I knew that it was totally different for me. Well, fast forward three, four years down the line, I'm practicing law. And I feel like I'm in that spot again where I'm not understanding quite what I'm supposed to be doing while I'm practicing law. Like I know what my job is, but I'm feeling lost again. And then I started reading a lot of books from great lawyers, Johnny Cochran, Thurgood Marshall. They're talking about the same not feeling adequate. I mean, these guys are superstars, but they're still in court. They're in the court and they're saying, you know, I'm not feeling adequate arguing this in front of this white jury or this white judge. Or, you know, I just don't know if this is the right thing to say. I'm hearing what they're saying and I'm thinking this is similar to me in my one, two years of practicing law. And so I started writing a book for undergrad students and law students so that they could kind of see it, see all these things that were starting with Johnny Cochran going through me and then ending up with a person that's going to law school for the first day. And so I started it about four years ago, wrote it, didn't like it, left it alone. I did it about five times. And then the last time I left it alone for like eight months and I went back and I read it. Have you ever written anything or did some work? And then you went back and read it again. You was like, oh, that was okay. That was actually pretty good. Well, when I wrote it, it was crap to me. But I was like, man, this is this is all right. So I sent it back to my publisher again. And she was like, yeah, I think it, I thought it was good the first time. I was like, well, maybe I just wasn't at a good place. I think I wanted it in my own mind. I wanted to test a lot of the theories that I thought that I was learning to. So when I went back and read it the second time, I was like, yeah, that's spot on what I was thinking. And so that kind of helped me. And then I had to get past the, you know, if I put this out, people are going to judge me or what are they going to think? Or, you know, our lawyer is going to think I'm getting too big for my britches. Our judge is going to feel a certain type of way. You know, in the lawyer community, everybody always has something to say about something. So, like, is this going to stop me from being able to be prosperous in my practice? Get past all of that. And what I came up with was I felt like God gave me it. And I felt like when I wrote it, it was for someone else. So even if it burdens me in my practice, but it helps someone else, along or helps two or three people along, then I'm fine with it. So once I got over that and went over the book, you know, 50,000 edits, driving my publisher crazy. She finally came with the last draft and that was pretty much it. So about four years altogether. Johnny, after law school, did you have mentors or did you have mentors during law school and, and talk about, like, did you go out on your own right after law school or talk to us a little bit about your employment history as a, a new lawyer? Well, first time I took the bar, I did not pass it. And I had about three or four job offers that were on the line. Of course, you know, they went away. And I started interning at a small firm in my town. It was one lady along with, uh, no, it was two ladies. And so as I passed the bar, I went on with her. I practiced with her for about two years in my hometown. And after about two years, I saw that I was able to bring in clients. And I saw a little bit about how the business was structured and I realized that the amount of money that I was bringing in through the firm, I could easily go out on my own and cover my overhead and, you know, make some money for myself and also market myself in different ways that I probably couldn't do under that umbrella because it was a more um, mom and pop type firm, which is, you know, wills of states and that type of thing. And I was doing a lot of criminal law, drugs, and this, just the two target markets are totally different. So a lot of the things that I wanted to do I really couldn't do and it wouldn't be effective. So I went out on my own in 2016 and I've been out on my own ever since. Before then, I was working with the North Carolina Department of Juvenile Justice. I was a juvenile justice officer. 
So a lot of the gentlemen that I saw in the juvenile hall, I ended up, actually ended up representing later on. And so even though I didn't think I was going to be a lawyer, it's funny how life kind of comes back and hits you in the face again. Because once I became a lawyer, I saw the same guys that I was working with. And that was that was also cool, you know, just seeing the progression of, I guess, life. Hey, Johnny. So I bet you have a ton of lessons in this book. So what's your favorite lesson from the book? My favorite lesson is actually just watching, even when I read it, going from hilltop to rock bottom. So many times in my academic career, you know, I wouldn't get that grade that I needed. Or when I got in law practice, coming out trying cases and losing them. Or, you know, investing in different business ideas that didn't pan out. But always getting back to, like, rock bottom and just getting up, I think, is the main thing. I think if you read the book, you'll see the struggle because I'm pretty candid about not taking myself seriously and letting everybody know, like, this has been a hard struggle, but it's worthwhile when you're, you know, giving it your all. So I think the main thing is just like, keep getting up. If you don't get up, then at some point you'll fall into depression. And depression is something that I don't believe in. I believe like people become depressed when they don't act. So if you wake up in the morning, you get up, you won't be depressed. But if you lay there and you look at the ceiling, that depression to sit in. And that's, that's a terrible thing, man. I'm going to date myself a little bit here. When I was in law school, you two, it was the middle of the O.J. Simpson trial. So I got to watch Johnny Cochran mm-hmm. and Christopher Darden and Marsha Clark and F. Lee Bailey, all those characters. And, and I remember when the verdict came out, the law school was split right down the middle. The black students all cheered and the white kids were all scratching their heads saying, why, why, oh, why are people cheering that O.J. got off? And it's taken me a long time to sort of understand that. But I've honestly never thought, Johnny, what it would be like to be an African-American man standing in front of a jury. I've never thought of that as sort of an issue. And I'll, I'll tell you a real quick story. I was driving my kids and family down to Florida last week and we got pulled over for speeding. And I had my headsets in and my wife had something dangling from the windshield. So this Illinois state trooper came up. He was a white guy. He looked us all over and he took his time. He went back and he wrote me up three warnings and he didn't give me a ticket. And and as soon as the we rolled up the windows and started to drive away, my kids started yelling, white privilege, white privilege, because they, they were just appalled that the police officer didn't give me a ticket. They were pissed at him for not ticketing me and they were saying this isn't fair. So talk a little bit about that. How do people who are white sort of relate to that and how, how can we sort of tap into that sort of mindset? Well... The book is big on focusing on where you are, like taking who you are, where you are, where your strengths are and going into the moment and getting the best out of it. So, number one, if you're going if I'm going into a county and I know that the county is 75 percent white and 25 percent minority, then I know that I'm going to end up with a jury that's probably about one to two people may be black or any type of minority. So I got to know that going into it. Like, okay, what are we looking at here? I'm going to be dealing with an all-white jury or almost all-white jury. I have an African-American client, and then I already know the judge. Let's just say that the judge is white, too. Let's just say that the DA is also white. So what I have is me and my client. And how I feel about that is is actually pretty good. I think the David versus Goliath effect works a lot. And so what I always try to do and what I channel is if if I feel like a judge is coming off on me or trying to belittle my arguments, because number one, because I'm a criminal defense attorney and I'm I'm advocate for some somebody that may have done something. It's easier for judges to lean on the side of the state. What I also try to do, I just give in a little bit more. So if the judge is browbeating me and the D 
DA is being super aggressive, then I always come down just a little bit. I may fumble my papers a little bit more. I may seem a little bit more distracted and a little bit more unfocused. I may pat my client on the shoulder and tell him it's going to be okay. Meanwhile, the jury gets the sweet 16 effect. Everybody loves the Cinderella. And so when I go into a courtroom being an African-American, if I have an African-American client, it's an all-white jury, what I'm thinking is, how can I be that Cinderella? I want to be 16 because I need to nod for one of those jurors. And if the judge is going to be harder on us, let's feed into it. Let's be effective with our arguments, but don't argue back at the judge. So taking the situations, how you have them, how you are, if you're African-American, if you're Chinese, if you're white, understanding all your conditions, understanding your strengths, and actually using those against the court, however they're presenting it to you. Many times I go into court and the judges, you know how judges can try to make you look dumb in front of the jury. That's like their that's like their thing. If the judge can make you seem like you're not doing what you're supposed to or you don't know what you're doing in front of a jury, it's like they win. But kind of feeding that energy and targeting it to the jury because ultimately the jury is going to have to come up with that decision. And if they're feeling bad for you and they're feeling bad for your client, especially if you're looking at, you know, 40 SBI officers on the other side, we use all of that. So I just take who you are, use that as your strengths. And in whatever environment you have, uh, obviously, if it was all black jury, I would I would change that as well. If it was a black judge, I would change that as well. You have to adapt to your environment. I think that culture shock of law school when I first got there has equipped me to do that. So, Johnny, uh, about five years ago, I tried a case in the middle of Missouri, rural Missouri. And the only two people whenever they brought the veneer panel in, the only two people in the courtroom that were African-American were my client and the bailiff. And so I had to address that, right? That's a problem, right? So I, I, I just curious, like, how do you address that, right? So, so let's say if you go into a courtroom and the only two African-Americans are you and your client, like, how do you address that to the jury? Sure. Okay. So understand that you are a lot more, it is a lot more politically correct for you to address that than myself. Okay. A lot of times I'll let deadlines be, or I'll, just, I'll ask the questions that I need to ask. And I'll allude to certain things. I'll allude to how immaculate the court looks or how intimidating the moment can be when we're sitting here and my client is sitting here and obviously he's charged with something. And hopefully what they're gathering is like as they're looking around, they're seeing, oh, man, you know, it's an African-American guy there. And, you know, all of us are white. Like, do we really need to think about that? If I as African-American brings up if I say, okay, is anybody racist? If anybody's racist, I want you to raise your hand right now because I'm going to get you off of this jury because I don't want you to convict my guy. Obviously, nobody's going to raise their hand. So what I have to do is sell them on the moment, make them promise, hold them to their word, and just get strong thinking jurors just like anybody else. But I don't say that. And I talk about it in the book. It is a lot more politically correct for you to make that statement. And appear, you appear strong when you do that. If I say it, I may appear strong, but I may lose some people because it's old. Oh, he's playing the race card. So I don't I don't even want people to entertain that. I let them draw that from their own inference. Just as when I'm speaking with an officer, let's just say it's a it's a it's a bench trial. And there are certain things that he's done that I need to bring out as an African-American. I can't always undress an officer the same way that my white counterparts can in some courts, because. It's not the norm. If they don't have any African-American attorneys in that county, then I don't know if they've ever been cross-examined by an African-American. I don't know if the judge knows what that looks like, but certainly I don't know how he's going to take it either. So 
So earlier on, I just had to learn how to use soft words to give that quick sound effect, let the officer off the hook, but at the same time, hook him enough. And I really got that from Thurgood Marshall where he said, you want to, as much as you can, argue procedure and not the stronger, substantial racial issues if you can. If you can get them on the smaller things and they can compile and everybody can see that it's a racial issue, do it that way. But don't go race, 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 especially as a black man. You, you know, you won't win, man. <laughs> you won't win. And your client is going to go to prison for a long time. That's the thing. If you go at an officer and you don't get the nod from the judge or the jury, he's going to get some time. Like, And it's gonna, you're going to feel like it's your fault. Hey, Johnny, it just occurred to me that you have the first and last name of two of the most famous criminal defense lawyers of all time, Johnny Cochran and Atticus Finch. Is that your real name? It sure is. All right, all right. So that's awesome. I wonder if you could switch gears a little bit, Johnny, and talk about the business of law and talk to us a little bit about your practice, sort of how you've grown, where your clients come from, and where you see things headed for the law office of Johnny L. Finch, Jr., well, when I first started, it was me, and I was doing a lot of, again, I was doing a lot of major crimes early on in my career, I tried a whole lot of cases in it. So it, it uh, gave me a nice little space to work in within the two districts when I worked, because when I would go there, when you first start practicing law, you don't really understand all the sentencing nuances. What you do know is you have, at the end of the day, you can try the case, and I was excited to do that. So I was able to create a niche for myself within the community. If people got in trouble, they'd wait until it was trial. They would come and they would pay me to do it. And so I've been trying cases steadily, you know, four or five a year for the last year, last five or six years that I've been practicing. Last year, I moved over to a bigger, smaller town. That's East Greenville, North Carolina, which is East Carolina is there. It's a college town and a lot more of your, you know, alcohol tickets and your drug offenses type things. So I've been able to practice there for a little while, get some trial experience there. I hired an associate last year. In my practice, I do quite a bit of traveling. I may travel, you know, two, three hours a day. And he was a very good guy, but he couldn't really get with the traveling that I was doing. He wanted to be more stationary. He had his own idea about what being a lawyer was and what he needed to be doing. I understand that because... I get up about five o'clock in the morning and then I'll stop around 8 p.m. at night. My wife wants to kill me every time I get home. And that's something I definitely need to work on. So basically this last year, what I'm looking at doing and going into the, the new year, just doing more, you know, high, high, you know, your more of your murders, more of your robberies, more of your high drug cases and leaving some of the speeding tickets alone, just because I can, I can focus in on those a little bit better. And if I can find another associate, then I'd be happy to have one. And I can teach them how to do, you know, your DWIs and your lower level felons and your, and your misdemeanor. But I think I'm going to stick with uh, criminal for a little while. Also, I'm also looking into, with the book, getting into speaking to law schools a little bit more, too, because I enjoy that as well. That's kind of my mental release whenever I can go and speak with potential people who want to be attorneys. It gives me that mental release from actually practicing law that I do love, but you can get burned out and anybody can get burned out. So. Making good business decisions is something that I'm really working on right now because as a solo practitioner, you see every decision that you make. If you decide to get a $200 software in January and then, you know, in November, you definitely see where that money went, if it was worth it or if it was a bad idea or if you had a new assistant, all of those things come back so quickly. So just making good strategic business decisions is, is really, really good. Also, I do a little bit of civil injury work and so whenever that you know you hit a 
pretty good case or a substantial case, just making wise decisions when you get it. So Johnny, what percentage of time do you spend on the business of law and what percentage do you spend on practicing law and how do you balance the two? I would say I would say about 75, 25, because even when I'm talking with clients, I'm probably talking about the next payment that they may owe me. So it kind of mixes in. And I spend a lot less time now because I do so many of the same cases over and over again. If someone comes in my office as a DW, I can look at it in 20, 30 minutes and tell where we need to be. Whereas, you know, trust accounts, marketing, advertising, speaking events, all of those things are the ones that, you know, take road time. So I would say about 75, 25. I think that's about right for me because I'm one of those go hard or go home type people. So you don't want to see me in a casino, man. If it seems like a good idea, I'm ready. To, you know, I'm ready to go at it right then. So, hey, John, um, come to St. Louis. We'll go to the casino, <laughs> baby. I'm telling you. So, I mean, just the whole, you know, wait a couple of days before I make that business decision, I think is, is, is probably the best idea for me. But, yeah, definitely about 75, 25. And I think that's about right. I think that's about right for where I need to be at this point because I definitely need to, you know, focus on the books. I know what I've noticed for me in practicing law is, you know, when the money's coming in, well, I'm not watching it as much. And that's not necessarily a good thing because you could be throwing a lot, a lot of money away. And so when the money's coming in good, I need to just make sure that I'm managing it just as I was when, you know, it might've been a hard month or a hard year. So that's key for me personally. All right, Johnny, we're coming up against the end of the hour. I have uh, two questions for you. One is, how can everybody find your book? You can find the book only at blacklawyerbook.com or johnnyfinchbook.com or postscriptpublishings.com. That's my publisher. And probably the easiest one to remember is blacklawyerbook.com, Black Lawyer Confidential. Keys to Successes, again, is the name of the book. And Johnny, I know you and your wife have a baby boy, Johnny the Third, and I'm wondering what advice will you have for him when he's say 20 years old? If he's thinking about going to law school, what would you tell your son? I have a two-year-old son and I have a one-year-old daughter. And I got married. Oh wow! Ago, so, I, so yeah, I went marriage one year, baby next year, baby the next year. Actually, like you said, I'm, you're all in. When you're in, you're all in. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would actually be excited about it. I have, I have a lot to teach him. And um, if he were to want to carry on the legacy, you know, I would certainly encourage him to come work with me. I think we don't do enough of that. I think this generation is, you know, my dad's a lawyer and I want to be a lawyer, but I want to go to Florida and he's in North Carolina. I'm going to encourage him, hey, go to law school, come practice with me, learn from my mistakes. You know, let's, you know, let's do this generation after generation after generation because, you know, certainly at some point I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. But if he's interested in it, I would definitely love for him to come and practice with me. That's pretty awesome, Johnny. All right. So we're going to wrap things up. Before I do, I want to remind everyone to go to the Facebook group, join up there. We have 10 until we get to 600, Jimmy, unless we've had some people today, which we might have. So we're almost to the 600 point. It's pretty cool. So go there. And also, if you don't mind going to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, giving us a five-star review there. It's really awesome. Help spread the word. So, Jimmy, what is your hack of the week? All right. So for my hack of the week, you know, I went a couple of weeks ago to San Diego Social Media Day with Mitch Jackson. He was presenting, and a lot of the friends from Mitch's group were there. 
And one of the presenters mentioned a website called audiojungle.net. And on audiojungle.net, you can download royalty-free music and audio tracks for a dollar, and you're able to search it by emotion or music type. So they have sound effects and music, and it's a great way if you're working on a podcast or other social media that you need music. It's a great cheap source that's going to keep you out of copyright or trademark trouble. It's really good because we're always in need of, of usually some audio for either for videos or whatever. So that's a really good one. All right, Johnny, what is your tip of the week? Tip of the week is be 15 minutes early for the rest of your life. That's a good one. That, that applies to everybody. So that's, that's a really good one. So, all right. So my tip of the week actually has to do with what I'm doing right now. And that is riding a bicycle in my office because I've been on my butt for the last couple of years doing very little other than I do some running, but my running has sort of gone by the wayside. So I've been trying to be active. And so during this entire podcast, I've been cycling. So uh, I bought a pretty cheap bike. It was $252. You can get cheaper ones. You can get far more expensive ones. And so um, whenever you're doing things like this, you're on a phone call, just hop on the bike and and cycle and help you get some exercise so that is my tip of the week johnny thank you so much for coming on this is a really really good episode we appreciate it thank you guys i appreciate you for having me thanks johnny thank see you, you fellas see you guys later thanks johnny right. see you johnny thanks for listening to the maximum lawyer podcast, maximum lawyer podcast. to stay in contact with your host and to access more content, more content. go to maximumlawyer.com. maximumlawyer.com have a great week and catch you next time